The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 5, The New Democracy. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. This is the last of our so-called crash course episodes, introducing you to many of the major issues of the antebellum period. Now, there are certainly other issues that we could have added to the crash course, but um, if they're important to the story, then they'll probably have a separate episode during the main part of the season. Um, and by that, I'm referring to slavery. I know some someone is going to point out that we haven't talked about slavery yet, but that has a, an episode of its own down the road. So if you're waiting for that issue, never fear. We're going to touch on it. As always, I thank you for your kind support. Um, Really, I couldn't do this if it wasn't for all of you fantastic people that are downloading and listening, not just here in the United States, but 80-something countries around the world, which uh, is mind-boggling to me. Um, So thank you very much. It is truly appreciated whether you're listening in... um, the United States or hundreds of downloads in Australia, Hong Kong, um, Korea, you know, just, just thank you very much from the bottom of my heart and keep listening. Um, okay, so um, let's get back to the podcast. By the 1820s, American politicians increasingly made an effort to appeal to the so-called voting masses. Now, remember before this, for the most part, high offices were held by wealthy citizens. But there's a change between the Jeffersonian ideal of democracy and the vision of Andrew Jackson and his followers, the Jacksonians. In the Jefferson world, the people should be governed as little as possible. In other words, this was government for the people. The Jacksonians believed that government should be done directly by the people. Now, that's a fairly significant change, and it's this idea that is the underpinning of Jackson's spoils system of the 1830s. And so what exactly was this Jacksonian new democracy based on? Well, it's based on the idea of white manhood suffrage rather than on the ideas of property qualifications. Okay, this is when the common man now becomes influential. But it doesn't start with Jackson's election in 1828. It starts well before that. Between 1812 and 1821, six new western states were uh, granted universal manhood suffrage as long as one, as long as you, were a white male. And between 1810 and 1821, four eastern states significantly reduced the voting requirements. Now, again, one had to be white. Um... And indeed, by 1860, only New England states allowed free African Americans to cast a vote. Now, if you break it down, the South, which was the most aristocratic and the least democratic region, was the last to grant universal white male suffrage. Now, this isn't a condemnation. This is just, I'm just stating a fact. But this change over to the new democracy is going to change the nature of American politics. 
First, new voters demanded that politicians represent the people's interest. A major aspect to what the people wanted was cheap land. As historian Frederick Jackson Turner stated in what has become known as the Frontier Thesis, it was the existence of cheap, unsettled land in the West that created a frontier society, which then shapes the American character. And this frontier society, according to Turner, is what led to the United States to becoming a more um, egalitarian and democratic country. And as historians Jeremy Adelman and Stephen Aaron note in an article they wrote a few years back called From Borderlands to Borders, a frontier is a place where geographic and cultural borders are not clearly defined. That's a place where peoples of different nations and cultures mix. And so we're going to get into this idea of frontier, um, of borders, borderlands, um, in some detail in a later episode, if not more than one episode. But right now, just keep in mind that the conflicts that are going to take place over borderlands, they're what shape the American character, at least according to Frederick Jackson Turner and maybe a couple others. Now, lastly, before we get into the meat of the episode, let's briefly look at the rise of working men's parties. In the East, laborers began to form organizations that demanded free education for their children, a 10-hour workday, and an end to debtors' prisons. This will begin a trend in the 19th and 20th century, uh, which sees American or which sees groups forming to demand societal reform, whether the issue is alcohol, slavery, voting, or other issues. Indeed, you still see that today when it comes to gun control. Some of these groups in the 19th century actually become quite violent, um, and you're going to see that in the Panic of 1837. <laughs> so, what causes the rise of this new democracy? Looking back, it might seem as if it was inevitable, and the question might seem silly, but it's fundamental to our understanding of this period. There are at least three major contributing factors to the rise of this ideology, the first being the Panic of 1819, the second was the Missouri Compromise, and the third was the rise of a new political age. So first, the Panic of 1819. Now, as this unfolds, people most affected by it, the workers and the farmers, blame the bankers, especially the central bank the Bank of the United States. Oh, how times have changed. They also laid heavy blame on the speculators who ended up foreclosing on their farms. So their solution? Get more politically involved. And this is especially true for the men who supported Andrew Jackson. Now, what did they want? Well, they wanted an increase <clears throat> the influence in the government. That's their goal. Their influence in the, in the government, they wanted to increase it. They then wanted to use this newfound influence to either reform or destroy the central bank. And one of the methods used to try and achieve this was done through the state legislatures. And so these bodies ended up waging tax wars against the Bank of the United States, as reflected by the famous Supreme Court decision in McCullough versus Maryland. Now, unsurprisingly, the federal court held that the states could not tax the banknotes of the central bank. Now, just an aside, this case was completely judged, in my opinion, wrong. It's a horrible decision. The court asserts that the idea – or the court asserts the idea that the Constitution grants implied powers to Congress, the federal government generally, to implement the Constitution's expressed powers. This is kind of correct. For example, the Constitution says that the government has the expressed power to create a navy. Well, at the time, you needed wood to build ships. So while the Constitution does not give the government the right to buy wood, it is implied. 
There is also the so-called necessary and proper clause, which gives the government the right to do anything necessary to carry out its expressed powers. Okay, that part is correct. However, one doesn't need a central bank in order to function for a functional national government to exist. At various times in American history, there has been no central bank, and the government functioned just fine. And so the second part of that decision, um, which simply begs the question, is when they said that a state may not impede valid constitutional exercises of power by the general government. Okay, but the question is whether or not the creation of a central bank is a valid exercise of federal power. Hamilton in the Federalist Papers said the government had only those powers which were expressly delegated to it, as did Madison. Now, of course, Hamilton was a notorious power-hungry liar um, who told people what he thought they wanted to hear so long as he could get what he wanted. Now, I know that's not what you're going to learn if you go watch the Hamilton play or um, if you're, you know, you've read one book on Hamilton, but believe me, this guy was um, notorious for saying whatever he thought you wanted to hear. And um, yeah, we, we can talk more about that later. Um, but anyways, the point remains, no one, no one who voted for the Constitution believed that the federal government could get do whatever it wanted. They were all told, and they all bought into the idea, that the government was one of limited powers, unable to do things which were not expressly delegated to it. The central bank was unnecessary and, this is the part the framers got right, a dangerous institution that ended up hurting the average person and enriching the elite. Okay, now the next important item is the Missouri Compromise, which we've already discussed uh, in a bit of detail. Simply suffice it to say here that the presence of northern opposition to the admission of Missouri as a slave state will make southerners feel that the federal government would violate states' rights. These people wanted to use their right to vote to ensure states' rights were not violated. And finally, by 1832, you have the reemergence of a two-party system. Democrats were the supporters of Andrew Jackson against the National Republicans or more easily understood as the Whigs. Now, truly, to be honest, um, the second system starts to emerge in the aftermath of the 1824 election when John Quincy Adams defeated Andrew Jackson. There was a four-man race, and without a clear winner in the Electoral College, it fell to the House of Representatives to go and elect the president. Now, this was also deeply divided, but Henry Clay, who was Speaker of the House, negotiated a settlement which saw um, Adams win and Clay himself chosen immediately by the new president as the secretary of state. Now, needless to say, this doesn't sit well with Jackson and his followers. In fact, Jackson denounces this as a corrupt bargain and launches basically a crusade against um, Clay and John Quincy Adams. In fact, um, what's going to happen is that Jackson will be successful in his attempt to win election in 1828. Now, the result of this is, number one, voter turnout increases dramatically as by 1840, 78% of the eligible voters turned out compared to 25% in 1824. You're going to get a new style of campaigning also emerge at this point. You get political parties that begin to use um, banners, badges, parades, barbecues, free drinks, baby kissing, all of that stuff. In other words, all of the trappings for the most part, of the modern political campaign. You also get voting reform. So an example 
is that members of the Electoral College are increasingly chosen directly by the people rather than the state legislatures. In the 1824 election, you already saw this as 18 of the 24 states used the popular vote to select their electors. Now, finally, the demise of the caucus occurs as it was now seen as an elite elitist mechanism. And so if you're wondering what was the caucus, this is where members of Congress would meet in groups and they would nominate candidates for president. Instead, now what's happening is that the parties would name a candidate based on party rules. And to do this, in 1831, you get the first nominating convention held by the anti-Masonic party. And by 1836, both of the major parties, the Democrats and the Whigs, used nominating conventions. Now, of course, both major parties today still use nominating, nominating conventions um, to officially pick their candidate, uh, although the reality is that the nominee is often known ahead of the convention these days. Um, the last time that we had a, uh, that a party had a convention that actually picked the nominee um, was for the Republicans in 1976, and in 1984, the Democrats' eventual nominee, Walter Mondale, um, he was short, 40 votes short of securing the nomination, and so he wasn't formalized until the actual convention itself. So basically, 1984 for the Democrats, 1976 for the Republicans. Um, that's the last time that a convention opened and the nominee was not actually known. Um, today, there are more – these things are more of just like a week-long um, infomercial, a week-long commercial for the parties – than an actual political news event. Okay, this one was a short episode. Um, again, as always, I hope uh, you were able to learn a little bit about um, American history there. If uh, you find this useful or you liked it, please feel free to travel over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. Um, and by us, I mean me. If you have any questions or criticisms, um, please feel free to email me. The email is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can also find me on Twitter, at American HisCast. And finally, you can check out the website, sign up for email updates, see the sources I've used to create Season 2. And until next time, have a good day.